Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jake Chanenson. Today, we'll be talking with Rudra Hartzog, professor of law at Boston University Law School, uh, about his book, Privacy's Blueprint, The Battle to Control the Design of New Technologies. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book. Sure. So I've been writing about privacy law for about a little over 10 years. And during this time, when I first started writing, the debate around privacy centered almost entirely around limiting the ways in which people and organizations can collect, share, and use personal information. And so the rules that were being proposed as privacy threats grew larger were proposed around having companies not collect quite as much information or maybe not share information or maybe not process information in particular kinds of ways. And I began to notice that the thing that was missing was any discussion around the design of these information technologies that were used to do all this data collection, processing, and sharing. And when I would bring this up, at conferences and and other talks, a standard pushback I got was there's no such thing as as bad technologies. There's only bad uses of those technologies. You wouldn't have a rule around uh, a knife. You you would prohibit using a knife to hurt someone um, because we use knives for vegetables and we to cut vegetables and, and for all other things. And so you can't create these uses of technologies because that's a, a the, the pushback I got was that's a, a misguided way to think about it. But that intuitively never sat well with me because every single design decision for a technology is meant to make a certain reality more or less likely. The whole purpose of a technology is to affect our world in a particular kind of way, to, to, to make something easier, to make something harder. And And so there's no such thing, it follows, as a neutral technology because every design choice was meant 
to effectuate a particular kind of outcome. And as a result, I think it's worth interrogating the design of these tools a little more, particularly in privacy law, because these design choices make us significantly more exposed. And to ignore them is to ignore a huge parts of this larger story. And so that's what led me to want to write the book, is to think about this gap that we have in privacy law that focuses so much on what people and organizations do with their actions and almost completely ignores the role of design in, in facilitating privacy harms. Great. So I was wondering if you could tell us, you mentioned briefly that there are these problems that these platforms enhance, facilitate, whatever. What are those problems? So design creates harms in two different ways. One is it sends signals to us. That's what design does. It tells us how these information technologies operate or something about the context in which we are interacting with them, and it makes things easier or harder. And any economist will tell you if anything useful is made easier, people are going to do it more. And if anything is made harder, then people are going to do it less. And a perfect example of this would be something like Snapchat, where every single design choice about Snapchat, and I open the book with this, is meant to make you feel safe and disclose more information, perhaps more sensitive information under the implicit promise made through design that your photos are, uh, will disappear after a time and, and will be ephemeral in a way that perhaps your photos on Facebook would not be. And of course that endangers us when that ends up not being true, which is what the Federal Trade Commission found when it was investigating Snapchat for unfair and deceptive trade practices. And we see this all over the place once you look for it. The design of, for example, facial recognition technologies makes mass surveillance mass surveillance much easier. And when it's much easier, more people are going to do it. The use of, uh, I'll pause for a second here. Um, the use of information technologies like AR and VR spectacles that put cameras almost imperceptibly hidden on your face, save for maybe a light or, or some other design feature, makes surreptitious surveillance easier. And so all of these information technologies are designed in ways to get more information about us while simultaneously making us feel more comfortable about it. And as a result, we become more collectively endangered by the increase in information collected and the harmful ways in which that information can be put to use. Sure. One thing you note in the book is the fact that control is not a cure-all in this space. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. So privacy law has really only three rules. And if you're a student in my privacy law class, Apologies that it took me a whole semester to get to that, but essentially there are only three rules. Uh, One of them is do not lie. This is Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission Act here in the United States that says just be honest about what it is you're doing. One of them is do not harm, which is don't do any damage to people. This is the unfairness rule and other kinds of rules. And then the final one is follow the fair information practices. This is a set of rules around data meant to give people control over their personal information. Sometimes it's called informational self-determination. And in theory, control sounds great. Who wouldn't want control over more personal information? 
The problem comes is that the way that control is manifested is through design. And the way that is manifested through design is typically through things like toggle buttons and drop down menus. And and so maybe even that would be okay. For example, we all recognize the little uh, button that exists on our phones that says something like collect geolocation or send notifications or whatever it is. And if you press it once, it goes green and that means on. And if you press it again, then it goes gray and that means off. And assuming that we know what we're talking about, then our, we have been given control over what information is being collected and our privacy has been respected, right? Wrong. Because it's never just one button in isolation. Rather, it's a button that exists on top of layers of buttons that we then have to go into and say, okay, do I want to expose myself to all public? Is it friends of friends? And what about ads? Do I want ad personalization? What are they going to collect if they do that? Do I want to give consent for use only for storage? Or what if I, I give consent for sharing it for other people? And so there are all these collective decisions that we have to go into and even assuming we spend three or four minutes, maybe five minutes trying to figure out the particular calculus for any one particular app, that's only one particular app. And then we sort of zoom out and we feel overwhelmed by it. The problem with thinking about control as privacy and thinking that if we have control, then our privacy is respected, is that if we get our wish for more privacy, We've been granted so much control that we choke on it. We're overwhelmed. And so the, the limitations of that, I think, caution strongly against prioritizing control in the design of our information technologies. The other reason that control is really limited is not just that it's overwhelming, it's that it's illusory. So if we had real control over our personal information, I would be able to open up a text box or a voice memo and say, dear Google, I only want you to collect my personal information when I'm driving to and from work or when I'm in a place that I've never been before. And I want you to recognize that automatically. And I want you to throw it away the second it's over with and only share it with three other different people and collect no other information at all from me. Wouldn't that be lovely? But of course, uh, if we sent Google an email asking that, it would go straight to the delete file. Instead, the only control that we have is the control that we are given by tech companies through the design of these information technologies. And they only let us choose the things that are ultimately going to be okay with them, that allow them to continue sharing their uh, uh, personal information, collecting it and using it for their business model. And so it really is an illusion of privacy because it's just a very small subset of control. True control is probably almost impossible because, again, if we had it, we would be overwhelmed at scale. The final reason that control is the wrong way to think about privacy is that it's myopic. It really only covers my decision with respect to my information in a very particular context, and it allows companies to offload that risk right onto us. But what it doesn't cover is how my consent for my personal data actually affects other people. So when I say, yes, you can use my face for facial recognition purposes, that doesn't take into consideration, and usually people don't take this into their risk calculus, how me empowering that facial recognition system is going to be 
potentially harmful for other people, particularly vulnerable populations like people of color or members of the LGBTQ community or Muslim populations that have traditionally been targeted by surveillance that are going to feel the brunt of my decision and the collective decision of all the people that opt in. They're going to feel that brunt first and hardest, and they don't get a say in this when we prioritize individual control over personal information. And so because control is overwhelming, because control is illusory, because control is myopic, I argue that we should really reject it as the goal for all of our information privacy rules, particularly those manifested in design. Right. So then what is the correct method if control isn't the right way to go about mediating our privacy? So in the book, I talk about three different possible values that could be different ways of thinking about privacy beyond just control. And the first one I like to think about is thinking about privacy as trust. In the book and in a series of articles with law professor Neil Richards from Washington University, we've developed the idea of privacy as being about protections within relationships of trust. And so all of us, when we open up an app or when we click the I agree button, we enter into, at the very least, a contractual relationship with these companies. And this is a relationship that's extremely imbalanced. Uh, These companies have significantly more power than we have, and they have significantly more information about all the risks of of interaction and more information about us than we have about them. And when there is such an extreme imbalance of power and information that flows one way, what that does, it creates a overwhelming incentive for companies to engage in self-dealing. And the law actually has an answer to that. They would impose, and I would argue that should be imposed for tech companies, a duty of loyalty, a duty of loyalty that would protect the trust that people give to these companies when we open up an app or when we use their services and they collect our data. And we think that this is a much more beneficial way of thinking about our relationship with these tech companies. And it would allow for lawmakers to create clear rules, not just in the ways in which data is collected and processed and used, but also the way in which these information technologies themselves are designed. It would mitigate against what has been called dark patterns. These user interfaces where people manipulate, where tech companies design their interfaces to manipulate people and trick them into clicking the I agree button or trick them into exposing more information than they otherwise would want to, or make it really hard to opt out of things that would otherwise be in their best interests. And so privacy as as trust and loyalty is one way of thinking about it that would be much more beneficial, I argue, than privacy as control. Another way of thinking about privacy is uh, thinking about the way in which information that is hard or unlikely to be found or understood is to a relative degree safe. So much of our traditional thinking about privacy tends to think about privacy in terms of secrecy. That is, as long as I keep it to myself and nobody knows about it, then it's protected and private and no one should have access to it. But as soon as I share it to anyone, then I have waived any privacy interest that I have there. But anyone that's ever walked outside in their underwear to take the trash out or walk by a window, 
um, or has shopped in a grocery store or a drugstore for something that's very sensitive, even though they're out in public, knows that we maintain a sense of of privacy, even in public spaces, because the odds that someone is looking at us is, in fact, quite low. And so through a series of articles uh, with a, a philosopher named Evan Selinger, and I talk about this in the book a little, we've developed this concept of privacy as obscurity, which really surrounds us all the time in our everyday lives. Because while you may expose yourself in your day-to-day outings, no one actually follows you around all day and maps together your entire route. That is obscure to most people. And so thinking about privacy as obscurity and as a spectrum where things are more obscure or less obscure could be a really helpful way for lawmakers and designers to think about privacy that protects our, our the probability of us being found in ways that privacy's control just doesn't cover. And then finally, the way in which I've come to think about privacy is in terms of power and the distribution of power and who has that power and how is that power used against other people. Um, this is a, a, a way I think of thinking about privacy that gets right to the heart of the matter, which is these information technologies can be designed in ways to accumulate incredible amounts of power that often get used against individuals and groups of people in really unjust ways. And if we were to take that to heart and create rules designed to mitigate abuses of power in design themselves, then we might have a more effective approach to regulating privacy around the world. Right. So what sort of boundaries and tools would we employ to uh, instigate this sort of change? So in the book, I talk about the various different kinds of approaches that lawmakers could implement as part of a holistic design agenda for privacy law. And of course, I start with the easiest ones, which would be the soft approach. This would be working with companies to create some sort of binding standards for the design of information technologies. We've seen this a little bit already in the data security space where we have industry standards like the payment card industry data security standards and other sorts of regulations that are basically agreed upon broadly within industry that say you need to design your information technologies in specific ways to keep people, uh, unauthorized third parties from accessing your information. And that's that's relatively non-controversial and could be really helpful. The moderate approach to a design agenda would be invigorating the existing rules that we have to be more sensitive to design protections. And here I'm thinking about looking beyond the four corners of terms of use agreements that we all click I agree to, and of course have never read and have no idea what they say, to get more at the meaningful expectations of privacy that people have in their interactions with these companies. So in other words, looking to the design, what do the privacy settings tell us about what people might expect when interacting with this service? What does the feature that information is set to quote, disappear, tell us about what people might expect about how these services are used? What do all these amorphous representations about your privacy is our top priority and we take your privacy very seriously and we'll never share your information in ways that you don't agree to. What does all that have to do with people's expectations? I'm thinking specifically about the 
design of, for example, Facebook system that allowed for the massive exfiltration of Facebook user data that eventually made its way to Cambridge Analytica. And this was the subject of a Federal Trade Commission complaint that targeted the fact that Facebook designed its systems to allow this massive exfiltration while simultaneously giving the impression to users that that your information would never be shared with third parties unless you consented to it. But the consent that was being referred to, of course, was some weird little button buried 15 pages deep into Facebook somewhere. And so the that would be the moderate approach, which is just do a better job of recognizing the role that design plays in our existing privacy expectations and how that we can leverage our existing privacy rules like unfair trade practices and deceptive trade practices to better include these, these design aspects. And then the third and robust way that lawmakers could respond to the design of information technologies that threatens people's privacy is to pass new rules that regulate design directly. And here I'm thinking about rules to prohibit dark patterns uh, in information technologies that frustrate people's ability to interact with services or expose them in significant ways. Perhaps rules that uh, are, have to do with algorithmic design and algorithmic accountability. Perhaps rules that would help mitigate the design of ad ecosystems that that result in the widespread commercial surveillance of everyone that picks up a smartphone these days. And then the most robust potential design response is to outright prohibit certain kinds of design decisions. And since the book has been written, I've come to believe that certain technologies, specifically facial recognition, are so inherently dangerous and the trade-offs are so significant and the harms are so severe that we should be outright prohibiting many kinds of designs being implemented in digital tools outright through through bands. And an example that I give is facial recognition technologies. And so through that's, of course, only for the most dangerous kinds of design choices and, and tools. But I think it should be part of lawmakers regulatory toolbox. And so through these soft approaches, moderate approaches and robust approaches, lawmakers can embrace a holistic design approach that much more accurately weaves in the true potential and power of these information technologies. That's great. And so we've been talking a lot about potential design choices. And I think we've really been circling a a term that you used in the book called privacy by design. I was wondering if you could tell us what that is and what that would look like in just perhaps a toy example. Sure, absolutely. So Privacy by design means something different depending on who you talk to. In law and policy, privacy by design has become a really popular buzzword. And it comes from a place of very good intentions as it's deployed now. But as it started out, it seemed like it was just a version of complying with the fair information practices just a little earlier in the design process. The way to think about this version of privacy by design is follow the FIPS, but bake them into your process when you first start thinking about these these information tools. And this is good. I don't mean to say that this is not necessary, only to say it is not sufficient. 
because what happens is when you think of privacy by design only as do the FIPS is that you fall back into the control trap because you fall in the control and transparency trap. And you start to conceive of design as this thing that, well, as long as we're being transparent, as long as we're giving people control, then we've done our jobs. And I think that's a problem. I think it's, it's the fair information practices are not going to solve all of our privacy concerns. And, and I really resist the tendency of lawmakers whenever they see a privacy problem to try and just chuck some more fair information practices at it or try to weave the fair information practices into design, which I think is sometimes what privacy by design is deployed to use. I actually think of privacy by design more uh, on a broader scale and in a more robust way. And what I mean by that is thinking about all the different affordances that technologies give and thinking about whether the law needs to intervene with these affordances that become extremely dangerous or that facilitate particularly dangerous conduct. And so I would say thinking about privacy by design would also include versions of privacy that incorporated privacy as trust or privacy as obscurity and, and trust ensuring design or obscurity ensuring design. And what this means a lot of times is going to be not just designing tools to be transparent or to give people control, but designing tools in such a way that certain kinds of information are never collected at all. And certain kinds of algorithms are never designed in particular ways to lead to harm or, or completely left off the table. And so I think once we think about privacy by design in this broader sense and incorporate many different kinds of values of privacy, particularly those of which I think are, are more effective than, than privacy as control, then we have a much better approach for privacy by design than just let's just hurl some more FIPS at this problem and do so sooner in the process. Thank you very much. Well, I think that's about all the time we have today. Thank you so much for talking with us about your book, Privacy's Blueprint. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Of course. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.